0: Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favourite dining spots. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this next lockdown episode, I'm speaking to farmer and best-selling author John Connell about his latest book, The Running Book, a journey through memory, landscape and history. My next guest is John Connell, Uh, he is a farmer and author of several best-selling books that include The Cow Book, published in 2018, and The Farmer's Son, published in 2019. He is talking to me from his farm in Birchview in County Longford in Ireland. Uh, His latest book published last year is, like those that went before it, very simply titled The Running Book, A Journey Through Memory, Landscape and History. John, as a reader, as a runner, uh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on The Booking Club.
1: Thanks, Jack. It's great to be on. And uh, I've been listening to the show. We've had some great guests.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I could go ahead and, and assume that you're looking forward to lockdown ending where you are in Ireland as much as the next person. But that might miss the fact that as a farmer, you are arguably always in some sense duty bound to stay anchored to your land. How has the experience of the last 12 months affected you in your unique occupation as both a farmer and a writer?
1: Yeah, you know, it's actually been a real uh, blessing, Jack. I will say. I know last year when the summer came, I was able to get in the car with my wife and would go up and see our sheep in a in a farm that's away from the house, and it was it was a, a way to get away from lockdown actually for for a half an hour or an hour go and see the sheep count and basically I was just counting them and making sure they didn't have any ailments, but it was it was a great lifeline. And then similarly, now we're, we're in calving and lambing season on the farm. So yeah, it's just, uh, it breaks the boredom and it breaks the tension. And um, and it gives me a sense of having done something worthwhile, the thing with farming is it's a bit like building Uh, you, you work at something and you finish in the day and the job is done and you can say, well, well, that's done now. Whereas with writing, you can, work for a day in a book and then turn around and say oh this this <laughs> this chapter doesn't work <laughs> you know so um in in that sense there's a practicality to it that that's that's really wonderful and um nothing stopped uh, everything had to keep going on we all need food and uh it's it's uh, it's had its ups and downs but it's been mostly positive i have to say and i've enjoyed the lockdown in some respects
0: so t- take us through your average day. You you, you mentioned getting up in, in uh, lambing and calving season. How does that play out for you?
1: Well, it starts at about 7.30. Uh, I wake up and I get myself over to the farm for around 8 o'clock, you know, get coffee and all the rest. And uh, we would check on the sheep first. They're all in at the moment. They've nearly all lambs, so there's two of them left to lamb. I just delivered a pair of twin lambs yesterday morning and the they would be fed first and you would check and make sure that nothing had been born in the middle of the night uh, and that they were all the ladies were were fine as I call them, all the ladies. And then our cattle are in at the moment as well, so they would all be they would all be fed and checked, and uh, they have there's drink there's water drinkers in the sheds, so that we don't have to bring water to them or anything like that. Um, and then you would generally clean clean out the different sheds where animals might be, or give them new bedding and new straw. So all of that takes till about uh, twelve o'clock around. Some days I don't finish till one or two. Generally, then what I do is I will have a cup of coffee. Obviously, I can't go into my parents' house, so I have a cup of coffee outside and have a chat with my dad. And then uh, I'll come home and my writing life begins. At the moment, I've just been, I've been editing a new novella that I wrote, which is called The Ram. So I've been reading that and editing it and making notes on it in the afternoon. And then I go for a walk or I go for a run and uh and then the day is over
0: it's really interesting that you talk about you know your day starting with the farming and ending with the running for most people who enjoy running as a form of exercise when they really think about what it is that drives them to do it i suppose they say well my ancestors would have been farming but you do both
1: yeah i think running is what i i often call it the office and uh I happen to live in an area with decent mobile reception, which is always great. (laughs) Even in London, you can get bad reception, but I, uh, I generally have, have my phone and I'll make a few phone calls to different people. And that's where I kind of conduct, I call it the office, because where I catch up with people or do a bit of business or whatever it is. And um, it's essentially my time. I find running, I started running about seven or eight years ago properly. I, I had run when I was a kid, but I stopped then. But, um, It's essentially, it's your little bit of time in the day to be with yourself and to enjoy the moment. And I think, for like, I'll be honest, Jack, I actually haven't ran for a month. I took January off and it was the longest I hadn't ran in a good while. And I came back to running the other day and really remembered why I loved it so much, you know. And I think that uh, running is something that can bring you a lot of positivity and a lot of peacefulness, really. I know it's actually a physical exertion, but it's the endorphins and it's everything else. And there's a sense of achievement in the day when you get a good run done, you mightn't get anything else done in the day, but you've got that mm-hmm. running and you feel positive about it. And it makes you say, well, today counted. And, um, that that's been my philosophy for a long time make the day count and i suppose it relates back to when i had some mental health difficulties a few years ago which which i talk about in the book and um and those days didn't count so i came out of that dark time uh with a with a determination to enjoy each moment uh to enjoy um being alive and to make account and 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 making account I don't want your listeners to think that it has to be oh he's running a marathon every day like half an hour 20 minutes it's it's just really it's giving the gift of life to yourself for that time and I think you know with the lockdown world we're in it's never been more important.
0: This is a book about more than just running, of course, the pain and joy of putting one foot in front of the other. It's a book about making sense of and coming to terms with the past, as you've just alluded to, both your own personal past and, and your country's past. I don't think it's too much to say that this book is largely about the, the salvation that you've sought in both of these things. Running, it seems, became part of your life as an act of salvation. How did it all start for you?
1: Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I um, I remember reading a thing uh, that um, Yukio Mishima, this Japanese author, said that the idea of fitness descended upon him uh, like an idea. And in a sense, it was the same for me. I was, after going through a pretty dark time with mental health, I'd spent about six months in a bedroom, not really leaving. And um this idea of creating a new person came to me and he had long hair and a beard and was physically very fit. I don't know why I chose running. I just, I i had always liked running. I'd been a pretty talented runner as a kid and uh, I'd, I'd stopped and started at, at it in my, in my early 20s. And uh, I suppose I had found that I'd only really ran on treadmills then, but I had enjoyed it. And so I was in Australia promoting my first book and uh, a friend uh, owned a gym. He brought me there and gave me a few tips on how to train properly. And then I kind of said, right, well, I think I'll run and go to the gym at at the same time. And then slowly I started running around Sydney while I was there with the book. And then I came back to Ireland with sort of a, a new focus and a new zest in me and uh, running was a way to rebuild myself and in a sense that's what I was doing I was rebuilding myself after after a life implosion and um, fitness was something that I hadn't taken into account in my prior life but also I suppose Jack I was aware that um, exercise and mental health uh, benefit each other very well. There's, there's a US cardiologist and a runner called Dr George Sheehan and he, he's dead now, but he was kind of credited with starting the running boom in America. And I mentioned him in the book, and he said, today is the great event. Today is your masterpiece. And it's not about, oh, well, on Friday, I'm going to go for a big run. It's like, well, some, some other shit might happen on Friday. Like, just make today the day. Um, but I think it's, it's that. It's making today your masterpiece.
0: You make only passing reference to the mental health issues you suffered, and I suspect that was a distinct choice because I don't think it matters necessarily what the details of all of that were or what they are for anybody, but rather what running means to people who have found it to be that way to pull themselves out uh, of a dark place. You talk about quite early on in the book how there are runners that are either running from something in their lives or running towards, and I think that pretty much any runner can relate to that. I certainly can. I quit smoking through running. What do you find you're running for these days?
1: Yeah, it's, a, you know, it's funny, Jack. When I wrote it, I didn't think of it in, in that huge of depth because I suppose I was living it. Well, I think it, it really captured people's imagination, that, 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 that question. Um, I would say I was someone who was running away from problems to begin with, uh, running away from uh, life, not necessarily going the way I wanted it to go. And then it started to change and it changed into running for or to happiness. And now I run to feel alive. Um, And it's, it's been a really interesting thing because it went from, and this can happen with fitness too, I suppose, but I was incredibly regimented with the running and very hard on myself. And it had to happen every day and I had to do X amount and I had to get X kilometers done in a week or miles done in a week. And, um, I remember I was training for triathlons at the time, but I had to take a step back after a while because I was working as working as an editor at a newspaper as well. I realized one evening and I was finished at about half eight, nine o'clock in the evening, and this was pretty normal. And I said to myself, you're not enjoying this anymore. You're just doing it because you you think you need to do it. And that kind of caught me uh, that, that little thought. And I said, I said to myself, I'm right. You're right. Like you're, you're treating this like a job and it shouldn't be fitness in my mind, fitness should be, shouldn't be a job. It should be about pleasure. Uh, I'm not expecting everyone to have runners high every evening, but to, to find the pleasure in the craft of running and in understanding it. You know, I got to know uh, the former World record holder, uh, Sonia O'Sullivan. And and we were talking about this, and she said to me, Yeah, she said, There's a lot of people who are training now, and they're amateurs who are training harder than we were training when she was a professional. And that to me kind of says, Great that you have the discipline, but maybe where's the pleasure? If you can find the, your exercises that that allow you to forget about everything for a while, then you've really found your play, as Dr. George Sheehan said. But if you're approaching the thing to say, well, I have to do 100 kilometers this week, there's no way around that, I have to do this, then you're taking out the thing that started you on this journey to begin with.
0: Yeah, there's pleasure to be had After the pain, you have to be prepared to go through the pain. In a sense, you may not look forward to every run. But treating every run as an individual unique experience is definitely a lesson I took from this book. Not to feel that you're going through the same motions that you're in Groundhog Day. It's as much a psychological state running as a physical state.
1: It is. Uh, It's it's the Taoism thing. It's, It's what Lao Tzu said. You know, you go to the river... And the river's never the same, and the man's never the same. I've <laughs> been writing a book about rivers over the, over the last summer, and, and was reading a lot about Lao Tzu. But there was one thing um, that keeps that kept popping into my head recently uh, that, that he that he says the stream is neither fast nor strong, but in its own way, everything gets done. And um, and I I often think of that because we're in our world, we we, we all want to be torrents of rivers but we forget that the stream gets everything done at the same time anyway yeah if if we can treat runs as each as you say as each individual new thing the problems of Monday are not going to be the problems of Wednesday and you know I suppose as well running is a little bit like accepting life's lot because as you said you might want to go and push yourself on Friday and go for this huge long run and it <laughs> might end up the only run for 20 minutes, you know? And you kind of have to say, well, that's, that's all that's in the tank today. Um, and it, I've always found the days where I go for the really long runs are never planned. Uh, they just happen. Uh, you say to yourself, I've got an hour and then, you know, three hours later, you're still running and you say, wow, I didn't, I, you know, so, usually, somehow usually you've kind of, a little bit of free space came up in your diary or whatever, and, and it, but you never plan it. You know, the, the running book's kind of, it's, it's a book about the, the great states of running. Like I'm talking about all these amazing places that I've ran, like America or Cliffs and Moher or, or, or Islington in London and places like that. And I don't, I don't talk, talk too much about the, the boring runs, but um, uh, as a runner, you run, for the, um, you run for the great days.
0: Normally, what an author wants to hear is, that I couldn't put your book down but actually I found it so difficult to keep reading because I wanted to keep putting it down to go running. Honestly, it made me want to put in practice a lot of the things you were saying. Perhaps the audio book was the best option in the end.
1: <laughs> well, I had a I had a funny thing with that. I hadn't read the book in a while and when we were recording the audio book, I finished it and I, I really wanted to go for a run. I was like, go for a run now. And and, uh, and and so I did that evening, but it was, yeah, it's, it's um, well, my writing style is to write short, chapters and I I said in a sense I don't want to hold the reader too long I want them to be able to pick up a book and put it down easily and yeah that that book I wrote it in Los Angeles and I was running uh I just for the duration of writing the book I didn't go to the gym at all I just ran every day and um and I would go for really long runs from downtown in LA to like to Chinatown and the and Fields and. It was just really special. You know, you, you hear the fitness guys talk about a flow state, but I was just in a bit of a flow state. And so there was a real runner's mindset with um, with the book.
0: I'd like to talk about Haruki Murakami here, because I, I read his book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, years ago. And one thing that stayed with me, he talks about the writer's supposed duty to delve into life's ugliness. And, you know, historically, writers have sought this through intoxicants. And how running is as much a way, he argues, of immersing oneself in that side of life, that ugly side of life, and returning purged and more enlightened as anything to do with drugs or, or debauchery. Um, and I wonder whether you related to that.
1: That's a great uh, That's a great uh, question. I think um, as I've gotten older, I think you have to live life. If you're going to try and be a writer, you have to have lived a bit of life to be able to talk about things authentically. And um, authenticity is something that I really uh, have thought about a lot in the last while Um, because if you are – the reason that – the reason that there isn't more young 20-something famous writers is because they haven't lived enough yet, you know? Um, so they're talking about themes that maybe they necessarily haven't lived through. And as a writer like Murakami, you know, he didn't start to write till he was just about to hit his 30s. And he'd already ran a, he'd ran his jazz bar and he'd lived life and he'd done a bit of business. And he kind of had a sense of um, what life was all about. I think that... Um, it's funny that you say that with the running the running is a drug itself, you know, as big of a drug as it really is uh, you know, and it's I don't drink, and uh, I used to, but I don't drink in in murakami's world and I tried to follow him in that respect, he gave up a lot of stuff hes he stopped drinking, he stopped smoking he he um he he stopped eating meat uh he's just just ate fish, and then he started running and working out properly. And kind of focused his mind in that great Japanese discipline way that they can uh, to just being a writer. People think that the creative world, they're all just sitting around waiting for ideas to pop in and then you just go off and go to the studio and do them or whatever. But like it's a job. A focused mind is actually a mind that's very liberated because you will be able to think about things properly and uh, clearly and examine them and see them for what they what they are. And um, for me, for Murakami, for countless other people, running has, has done that for them.
0: We've talked a lot about running. There is another side to this book, which is looking more at the history and historiography of Ireland. What have you found are the feelings that endure most for you when reflecting? on the history of Ireland's fight for self-determination and how did you decide to weave this into a book about running
1: Yeah you know um it's really strange Jack I the cow book was such success and I was kind of given a bit of carte blanche to write something different you know I could have wrote another farming book and I had I actually had tried but uh, there wasn't enough narrative there to really uh, make it work um the tensions with my father, which were in the cowbook, were non-existent anymore. And I suppose you see, when I was an investigative journalist, I worked with refugees, I worked with indigenous people, and so in a sense, I saw the results of colonialism around the world in the places that I worked and travelled in. And um, Irish people are, of course, aware of their past and carry some of that baggage. Well, look, I mean, I speak English, don't I? You know, so I think in english uh it's a result of of colonialism. Uh, I write in English um and these are things that I would thought about would have thought about a lot and then the book is dedicated to Stephen Ray, the actor, and Stephen and I would talk about this topic a lot, and uh it was just something that I wanted to examine, and I suppose I had the idea it was actually um I don't know if you know Adam Curtis's documentaries.
0: I know them well, yes.
1: Yeah, Adam has made like just some phenomenal documentaries. And uh, I was in Ibiza and I was trying to write the book and nothing was kind of... I knew I wanted to write a book about running, but nothing was coming. And I think I watched The Power of Nightmares, which was about how they constructed the the idea of World War II and what it was really all about. Uh, because the Allies didn't really fully understand what it was all about at the time until after. And the narrative was added and then I started. To, I was watching that, and then I just kind of hit upon the idea of, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I can look at the past, because the place I live in is is at this crossroads of history. So much history has happened here. It's a very quiet mi- middle of the road place in Ireland. Like it's not doesn't it's not full of tourists or anything like that. But again and again in history, it has played a pivotal role, mm. uh, right back to the Elizabethan times. And so I wanted to explore that notion. And then I was aware of W.G. Seaball's book, The Rings of Saturn, where he went for a walk in, in southwest England and um, how it flitted from topic to topic. So those things were kind of percolating in my mind.
0: My last guest, Peter Giggigan, who I believe is also from Longford. Am I right? Yes,
1: he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: He, he said that he grew up seeing America as a city on the hill and America comes up quite a lot in this book as well you reference Ralph Waldo Emerson Henry Thoreau and Walt Whitman as being big influences on your decision to live a free spirited life in harmony with the land are you as enamored with America today as that which the transcendentalist poets wrote about or have you conflicted feelings towards it now
1: i i love america i think i think as an irish person there's the there's the chance that you could go to america and that you're son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter could be a senator or could be a president. And uh, that's the American dream. It it doesn't happen maybe in the first generation, but it can happen. And I, I, I I really love America. Um, I think it's a wonderful place. I think that it has went through a really tough time. Uh, It's still in the middle of it. Uh, It's, it's quite divided, but as Irish people, there's so many Irish Americans um, that we all have a connection there. I think, I think for, for, for Irish people, the two islands or the two places we went was either Britain or America when we emigrated. And there's 70-plus million Irish in the diaspora now. Um, so, and, and by far more than went to America than went to, to Britain. And I think that that gives us a special connection. And I think every time I go to America when someone hears my accent, there's a... There's a predisposition in the American to go, ah, oh, you're Irish, you know, that's great. I think it doesn't really matter how wealthy China becomes. There'll never be another country to have the cultural output uh, that America has had, I think. You know, that because it, it it is such a multicultural nation. It is a place of ideas. It is a place of innovation. Um, and uh, and freedom of speech good and bad um, but I think that uh, I think that it'll always hold some fascination for me uh, it's just a great place Yeah.
0: I don't want to get too bogged down in politics I talk about politics on, on most episodes <laughs> right. of the booking club but I do want to ask you what you think the future holds for the UK
1: gosh isn't that the question
0: of our times do you find the the idea of a of a one nation britain risible?
1: You know, I have a I have a great love for Britain. I uh, uh, particularly London. Uh I I didn't live in London uh ever. Um but in the when I came back to Ireland, um I became friends with a writer called Zia Haider Rahman and um Zia lived in Islington. He doesn't live there anymore, but I used to go over Gosh, every couple of weeks and visit London and visit him and visit my other friends in London. And I and I really got to love the city and how international it was and how global it was. I also got to love <laughs> I also got to love the English personality that a cup of tea would really solve most problems. And and you know, I think um, Britain faces a, a really difficult time at the moment. It's it's I remember someone said to me at the time when COVID started, said, Well, Oxford or Cambridge will come up with a a vaccine, you know. And sure enough, they did. And uh, I think that with Brexit, one of the big issues in this island was protecting the peace of the Good Friday Agreement. That was a tantamount uh, concern, both at an EU level and an Irish government level and a British government level. These two islands have been connected for so long, but I do think that it's been fragile. Like, it has been a fragile thing. Like, you know the good friday agreement was only in 1998 you know and we it's only the first generation who are enjoying freedom and prosperity in the north now and it's a delicate balance up there and i hope that we can maintain that balance and i and i hope that the right people in leadership make the right choices but i do look forward to i said to my wife last year we had hoped to go on a driving tour of england uh, of rural england and uh, we didn't get to do it so i said to her hopefully this summer uh, I would love to to travel around the UK uh, on a driving holiday. That sounds very quaint, but
0: <laughs> it'd be nice. Well, listen, shamefully, shamefully, I have yet to go to Ireland. And as for uh, a cup of tea, I've actually quite taken to Barry's, which I know is controversial. I know it's a controversial tea. I know it was pro-treaty. Some households banned it.
1: I have Barry's tea here. I... I, I, I um... There's berries and lions, yes. Um, I've been known to enjoy uh, PG tips and and uh, and, and all and Tetley and everything else. I'm not a tea uh, Nazi, so it's all good. Uh, uh, I, I do enjoy um, I do enjoy a couple of Earl Grey now and again.
0: You were you were born in 1986. Yet your writing is filled with the kind of reflections you'd expect from somebody who's looking back on a much longer life. How do you decide when you're ready to write these memoirs?
1: Well, you know, Jack, I've lived. In a way, I've lived a really long life. <laughs> I've packed in a lot into into my 20s were really, really busy. I, With the good and the bad that happened to me in the last 10 or so years, the novels, the three of them, were a way to make sense of everything that happened. Uh, whether it was a failed marriage or depression or or the good stuff like falling in love again and things like that. I never set out to to make sense of my life with a memoir, but that's kind of what happened, and um, it's been a enormously transformative experience, and it's brought me it's brought me readers from all around the world, and I suppose, as my wife says, in in a time where the real world is scary enough, and there's so much fantasy and and, and escapism, she said you can't replicate the human experience, and. I'm the only one that has lived this particular life and it seems to have resonated with people. But I'm not going to... Uh, it's not a Knausgaard thing. I'm not going to write five of them. <laughs> you know, I'm not old enough yet. So, But um, it's been a really enormous pleasure to do it. The fact that people have bought the books and turned them into bestsellers is just just cherry on top.
0: Thank you so much for, for joining me today. And, and before you go, I need to ask, where, when lockdown lifts you'll be running to
1: well you know i've been hankering for some sushi uh, unfortunately we live in the countryside so we'll have to go to dublin um but we will go to um we'll go to yamamori or some of the sushi places and uh, just eat ourselves silly my, my wife's family are vietnamese australian so we've been we've been making vietnamese food here which is great but um I think the one thing we've all learned in lockdown is we're all quite good cooks, but it gets really boring cooking for yourself every single day. It's nice to, uh, at least in the countryside, that's the way it is, but it'd be nice to uh, it'd be nice to go for a nice meal. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, John. Thanks, Jack.